So thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and uh, to experience um, um, Solon College and uh, Cambridge during uh, what I'm sure is typical weather uh, <laughs> for all of you. Uh, it's uh, it's always very it's always a pleasure for an American to visit uh, to visit the mother country, and. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy coming from my Cambridge to the other, and I have to admit, original Cambridge. And it's also an honor to deliver a lecture that has been, has addressed many important topics over the years, um, and has been delivered by an array of distinguished predecessors. What I want to do today is uh, to address the Obama presidency, which is drawing uh, to its close in the United States. And I do that not as a biographer. I'm not a biographer. I'm not going to be able to, to make all kinds of scintillating quotes that you haven't heard before. I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, I'm not even a narrative historian, so I won't be able to provide some of the kind of wonderful uh, detail that many of you uh, might enjoy, and I'm sure I would enjoy too if I, if I knew it. Uh, I'm, I speak as a political scientist who, uh, from the start of the Obama presidency, has seen this particular presidency as, as an interesting, pivotal uh, instance in uh, modern American politics because it is a presidency, um, the president himself and his party, trying to shift the direction of a very cumbersome a governmental system that is hard to shift under the best of circumstances. And the story in this case is unfolded under unusually contentious political circumstances. So that's the kind of reflection that I'm going to offer on a moment um, in US political history when a change-oriented president comes to power uh, at a time when U.S. economic and military hegemony in the world faces the need for fundamental readjustments, when international challenges uh, take new forms, such as the need to adjust uh, global climate change, when uh, U.S. society and, and the economy are rapidly changing, um, and when many wonder if a 200-year-old constitutional democracy, I realize that you know, by British standards this is nothing, but 200-year-old um, uh, constitutional democracy can face the ch challenges that lie ahead. All of that was clearly on the minds of Barack Obama when he bid for the presidency uh, in 2007 and 2008. And uh, I'd like to share some reflections today with you on how the Obama presidency has both reflected and handled these shifting conditions and challenges. Now, the poster for today's session, and I'm very pleased that it's up there, uh, does a nice job of framing a central reality that any analyst must face in assessing uh, this presidency right now. Uh, it's not over yet, and it's always better to explain things after they're over. Um, so I face the challenge of um, addressing what we see in the poster. We see a very sober President Obama who might well be contemplating his legacy and what it's going to turn out to be. His hair is a little less gray than I think it actually is after seven years in the White House and in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's flanked by vaguer pictures on his left 
of the now we know 2016 Democratic presidential contender Hillary Rodham Clinton who embodies the mainstream Democratic Party synthesis of Clinton and Obama accomplishments and the hopes for their continuation and extension in the next period. Uh, Hillary Clinton, as we all know, has won the right to build on the Obama legacy by surviving a populist left primary challenger, Bernie Sanders, who has been, um, in recent years, a leading critic of Obama for not, he says, achieving all the progressive political and policy changes he supposedly could have achieved. On Obama's right, uh, in, in the poster, is uh, a, a looming picture of Donald Trump. Uh, the blustery reality TV real estate mogul, I, I have trouble saying this, but <laughs> who has won the GOP ticket to challenge for the presidency in 2016, a, a truly remarkable development in American political history. Now, Trump, as we know, was the leader of many right populist efforts to delegitimize the Obama presidency. For example, by touting the so-called claim that Obama was not a native-born American and therefore not a legitimate president of the United States. Uh, and he has uh, risen to uh, the nomination, the presumptive nomination of the Republican Party, by uh, working his way through deep fissures that have appeared, particularly between elites and populist-minded voters in the Republican Party during the eight years of the Obama uh, presidency. So the poster nicely reminds us that we cannot really pin down the Obama impact just yet, because so much depends in assessing any presidency or for that matter, any leadership episode in any polity at any time in human history on what follows. In the US case, um, our polity and our society are both deeply polarized and we cannot be sure whether Obama's achievements will have set new directions that continue after his departure or will have sparked a profound reaction and roll back. Uh, that will undo some, but I think not all, of his accomplishments. So that's the moment on which I'm delivering this lecture, and we'll just make the best of it. Uh, I'm going to search for an interim assessment. Now, what yardsticks would we use in thinking about uh, the possible impact of the Obama presidency? One possibility takes us back to the truly euphoric uh, and, and somewhat unifying moment that occurred um, November 5th, 2008, when Obama uh, won the presidency by a decisive margin, particularly for a Democrat in the current period, and there were massive joyous crowds in Grant Park in, in Chicago with um, uh, civil rights leaders and uh, people who had worked their whole life for racial change and uh, uh, as well as Democratic uh, politics uh, with tears in their eyes and with a gracious message from the losing Republican John McCain who pointed to the pride that all Americans could have in uh, what really I think frankly was a surprising moment that a man named Barack Hussein Obama, uh, uh, an African American of partially African descent could be president of the United States, could be elected president. And that moment, that pride lasted across partisan lines for some weeks into the Obama presidency. 
Uh, before Obama actually was inaugurated in late 2008, the cover of Time magazine celebrated the ho most hopeful possibilities that seemed to have been unleashed that night um, by suggesting that um, Barack Obama, who was portrayed on the cover as, uh, as if he were a black Franklin Delano Roosevelt, riding in an open convertible with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, uh, uh, President Obama, backed by Democratic majorities which had just been elected to the House and Senate, thereby giving him a parliamentary-like possibility to act, um, uh, which is rather unusual in American politics. Um, the possibility that a new New Deal, as they put it on the cover of Time magazine, could bring about a mutually reinforcing redirection of federal government policies and, and, and activities domestically and in the world, and an electoral realignment uh, at the same time that would ensconce Democrats in power for perhaps many elections to come. Now this model, this new New Deal model, uh, yardstick against which we might look back and measure the Obama presidency suggests that we um, look for the possibility that major policy shifts were accomplished that fed into supportive electoral changes which in turn further reinforce the new governing directions. In this case, we would be looking to see whether governing shifts in the direction of building a more bottom-up and middle-class oriented economy uh, and a more cooperative international uh, role for the United States were brought about and whether they brought political rewards for the party of the president that helped to propel them. So that's one yardstick, the new New Deal yardstick. A second yardstick uh, however, was articulated by Obama himself uh, before he won the presidential nomination in 2008, during the 2008 Democratic presidential primaries, when he stated his aspiration, and which, he, uh, which he's repeated in similar terms many times since, not so much to be a new Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but to be a democratic version of the late 20th century Republican president, Ronald Reagan. Here's what Obama said to the Reno Gazette Journal about this. Quote, I don't want to present myself as some sort of singular figure. I think part of what's different are the times. I do think that, for example, the 1980 election was different. I think Ronald Reagan changed the trajectory of America in a way that Richard Nixon did not and in a way that, here he takes a swipe, Bill Clinton did not. <laughs> he, that is Ronald Reagan, put us on a fundamentally different path because the country was ready for it. So this model is, uh, this yardstick would be to measure the degree to which uh, Obama uh, fulfilled his own aspiration to be a kind of new pathfinder, a door opener, that would uh, not so much accomplish a new New Deal, but uh, put, the, put America on a new course, broadly supported, um, and uh, certainly shift the direction of uh, governance and politics from directions that had been in place from Reagan through 
uh, the Bush Jr. Uh, presidency that preceded him. Uh, we can weigh Obama's presidency against both of these yardsticks, and that's what I propose to do, and see that he has almost certainly registered accomplishments in both, that, that go partway toward fulfilling both uh, visions of change. But he has not fully achieved either vision. Um, and to see why that's true, we have to probe both policy shifts and political changes and their mutual interrelations. And we have to actually go beyond Obama and the Democrats themselves to look at what happened with Republicans um, and conservatism in the United States uh, during the uh, Obama era of the last eight years. I'm going to do this in three steps. First, I'll address why Obama's presidency has accomplished policy changes, but not the political reinforcement that would be expected if it were really a full new New Deal. He's kind of done a halfway New Deal. And then I'm going to talk about uh, why U.S. conservatism and the Republican Party have moved to um, uh, extraordinary uh, extremes uh, during uh, this period as they fought against and sought to obstruct uh, the, uh, the accomplishments and aspirations of the Obama presidency. And finally, I'll talk a little bit about how Obama has indeed achieved a possible Reagan-like trajectory shift. I think in many ways he has uh, probably uh, achieved what he set out to achieve, but certainly not in the ways he imagined, and the issue is not yet settled. Now, I'm not going to go through a lot of empirical data in this lecture. But I want to assure you this is based on a lot of empirical research. Um, in, the, in the first two years of the Obama presidency, I assembled a whole team of political scientists and political sociologists to uh, analyze the policy changes as they were happening in a whole series of spheres, immigration policy, environmental policy, labor policy, education policy, health care, uh, uh, taxes. Uh, and to see how much was accomplished, whether it was accomplished through administrative action, legislative action, the use of the bully pulpit, these are the three major ways in which American presidents can act, and what kinds of response uh, the attempts to bring about policy changes in all those areas uh, met, uh, not just from Republicans, but from Democrats in the Congress, because in the US system, the people in Congress often don't go along, even with presidents in their own party. Um, and what responses they receive from the public and broader interest groups. So that empirical basis for the first two years, uh, in many ways, some of us have carried forward by tracking those policy changes in those areas through the full seven years. In addition, I've done original research on the Tea Party explosions that emerged, and I'll talk about them briefly, in the first two years of Obama's presidency, and most recently, I'm working with a team of collaborators to look at the reorganizations on the right and left in U.S. national politics that have come to uh, uh, new, new, new culminations during the eight years of the Obama presidency. So that's what I'm drawing on. Now let me start by talking about why, um, against the new New Deal yardstick or aspiration, uh, at best uh, the Obama presidency has achieved a halfway New Deal. I think it's arguable, and I'm going to argue, I'm, I'm sure there are dissenters in the audience, and we'll hear from them in due course, 
that on the policy side, the achievements of the Obama presidency really do add up to a remarkable series of legislative and regulatory accomplishments. Uh, let me just uh, mention some of them on the domestic and foreign side. On the domestic side, coming into office at a moment when the financial system was collapsing, uh, uh, the early Obama administration bailed out the auto industry and saved a great deal of economic activity in the American Midwest and engineered a major uh, stimulus program that certainly exceeded what European countries were able to do in that period that set the United States on an, a, yes, a, an insufficiently quick but definitely steady road to economic um, recovery and, and growth which continues to this day and lays the basis for Obama's claim to be a successful president. Because even though presidents don't really control all these economic things, they're measured against them. Uh, so that's number one. Um, Obama also promised from the start that he would shift taxes in the United States. Never an easy thing to do because it requires uh, cooperation from Congress in the direction of easing the tax burden on low and middle income people and slightly increasing it on the rich. And he has ultimately accomplished all of those things. Um, not very much on the rich, but um, as much as he could squeeze out of Mitch McConnell and John Boehner at a moment of potential economic uh, stasis or government stasis. The most important accomplishment on the domestic front is the most redistributive or equality-enhancing policy to be enacted in the United States in the past half century. That's the Affordable Care Act, which I have studied in some detail and I'm still studying because the implementation is just as important as the enactment. This is a law that, to put it briefly, uh, taxes the rich and business to provide uh, affordable health insurance coverage to now 20 million and eventually up to 30 million uh, citizens who are mainly low-income people who are not ordinarily in a position uh, to benefit from public policy changes. That accomplishment alone marks Obama as one of the major uh, modern era U.S. presidents, that he presided over that and stuck with it until it was accomplished. He presided over the enactment of re-regulation of the financial sector and the establishment of a consumer protection agency that Wall Street is still trying to dismantle, but it's still there. Uh, he, uh, he spurred uh, changes in the college loan system in the United States to take out businesses and banks as profit-making uh, subsidized middlemen and to deliver more uh, financial aid to low-income uh, students. Um, all those legislative accomplishments were pretty much in place in the first two years. Um, for six months of which, the Obama administration enjoyed a 60-vote margin when Joe Lieberman cooperated in the Senate, uh, and as well as majorities in the House. The rest of the accomplishments I'm going to tick off here are much more through executive action because that's all that's been available uh, in the, in the, since 2011. Um, K 
cap and trade legislation, by the way, failed in the United States in 2010. That's the most visible attempt that failed in those early two years. But even in the first two years, the Obama administration was engineering major investments in clean energy, and Obama has pursued with increasing firmness as he moves toward the end of his presidency a series of executive actions through the Environmental Protection Agency and other presidential orders to um, uh, change the incentives, uh, reduce subsidies and encouragements for dirty energy, and, and increase the, the incentives for businesses and states to use and produce clean energy. Uh, that he has uh, done the same in the area of immigration legislation, where attempts to enact comprehensive immigration reforms that included a path to citizenship for some 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States could not get through Congress, but twice President Obama has used executive actions to shift the focus of immigration enforcement toward removing recent border crossers and criminals and to protect children and families um, that are in the, in a way, in living in communities across the heartlands of America from the threat of immediate deportation. And finally, pro-union reforms failed, uh, and by the way, failed not because of Republican obstruction, but because of Democratic obstruction as well. Um, but uh, the Obama Labor Department has issued one after another in the way of new uh, uh, rules or uh, efforts to enforce health and safety measures, um, measures against wage theft, measures that speed up union elections. Uh, and uh, give some kinds of protections to home health care workers and undocumented workers who are among the most vulnerable in the American labor system. Now, on the foreign policy front, Obama promised originally, in fact, rose to the presidency, rose to the nomination for the presidency, by promising to withdraw the United States from the disastrous Iraq war. And he did which should not be minimized because there was no treaty signing on a carrier anywhere. Uh, it just had to happen through presidential commander-in-chief decision. He also promised early on to intensify the interventions in Af Afghanistan and then pull back, and that's what he did too. I think many liberals in the United States think he promised to be a pacifist. Well, no, he didn't. If you go back and look at what he promised when he ran for office, it was a form of muscular but cautious international realism that he proposed to reinstitute in the United States. And in many ways, he carried through on that, including a promise to intensify counterterror and anti-insurgency operations rather than conducting more massive invasions uh, to remake entire regions of the world. At the same time, he opened the door to more international cooperation on climate change efforts, and in just the last year has accomplished remarkable openings, uh, much contested in the US political system, to Cuba and uh, uh, support for the treaty with Iran uh, in the face of almost unremitting opposition. So I would say, and I've ticked off a lot of things, I probably missed some, this is a record that on the policy side measures up very, very well uh, to any other president for many decades. 
and probably would get you at least into the New New Deal territory, uh, if you thought it through. But obviously, these policy accomplishments have not been accompanied by political transformations or payoffs for the Democratic Party in any straightforward or mutually reinforcing way. In fact, uh, from the very opening days of his presidency, Obama faced, I think much to his surprise, in the midst of an economic meltdown, total, nearly total opposition from Republicans in Congress. And we learned later that the Republican leaders, Mitch McConnell, John Boehner, and others, uh, plotted from the night of the inauguration to do everything possible to block initiatives so that they would not be partners in anything that would result in a successful and quick economic recovery that President Obama could take a credit for. And then um, in 2010 and again in 2014, um, Democrats uh, experienced massive losses in uh, state elections. Republicans, very conservative Republicans, now control about two-thirds of American states. And of course, they now control both the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, of the United States. Uh, these are not just a failure to get political payoffs. These are political boomerangs of a, a very serious nature, especially because in the US political system, a lot of federal policy initiatives, such as the health care law, depend on states for their full implementation. Um, why did this happen? Uh, really, there was only about a six-month period uh, between the time that Senator Al Franken was finally seated in the summer of 2009 and before uh, Scott Brown was elected as a Republican to substitute the late Senator Kennedy in early 2010. It was only about six months in there where Obama actually had a Congress that perhaps he could persuade uh, to enact uh, legislative uh, proposals. Um, why did he face such uh, unremitting opposition, and why was that opposition so successful? Well, I'm not going to go into all the reasons, but I've elsewhere m mentioned a variety of them that I think come into clearer focus when you think about the conditions that existed back at the time of the first New Deal and compare them to the conditions social, ideological, political, that existed when Obama came to office. Let me just tick these off quickly. One thing that was very, very important was that Obama came to office just as an economic crisis was unfolding, just at the beginning. Whereas FDR in the 30s came to office at the depths of an economic crisis. That made it a lot easier in the 1930s to do something that Obama and his allies failed to do in 2009 and 10, which is to launch a massive jobs creation program, including public works. And Obama has re recently said, correctly so, that the failure to be able to do that was one of his big regrets about what happened in response to the 2008-2009 financial crisis. It was just getting going. Most Americans did not understand the depths to which our economy and the world's economy were headed. And Barack Obama and his quickly appointed economic team, which was mainly borrowed from the Clinton um, era and from 
Wall Street Democrats acted mainly to staunch the decline of the financial sector and to push through spending of any kind they could into quick channels. That was a major achievement given total Republican obstruction. Close to a trillion dollars was spent on economic stimulus and we know that it did staunch the decline and set the US economy and in many ways the world economy onto a, a road to recovery. But it was also a missed opportunity because Obama was not, I would argue, in a position to appeal to all political actors and to the American citizenry as a whole for a much more major investment in job creation at that critical moment when it might have made a big difference, particularly in how the American public ended up perceiving the um, bailouts and the recovery uh, proposals. Instead, although the recovery proposals worked, many Americans saw them as giveaways to privileged and existing interests. And in many ways they were um, in the emergency moment. So it's better if you're going to come to power in an economic crisis aiming to redirect government to come to power at the depths of that crisis rather than at the beginning. Obama ended up holding hands with the equivalent of Herbert Hoover, um, something that FDR very carefully avoided. Other things that, um, uh, shall we say, expanded or empowered the opposition or the public disillusionment while undercutting potential support would be the much closer alignment of partisanship and ideology in the current American political system. Back in the 30s, Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals did not line up perfectly. Now they do. And what that means is that Republicans were in an empowered position to pose uh, an ideologically consistent and, and, and uh, uh, loud critique from the first moment that tapped into Americans' longstanding uneasiness about strong government action. Uh, Obama faced the usual difficulties that any majority president faces with their co-partisans in Congress. He couldn't always corral all the Democrats. I'll skip that except to say that that was a very important factor in the failure of cap and trade. It wasn't just Republican opposition, but the opposition of coal state Democrats and moderate Democrats that undercut that. And tax, cut, tax policies and health care policy had to be compromised with moderate Democrats, which people who still existed in the U.S. Congress at that point. They don't anymore. They've been replaced by uh, much more extreme uh, conservatives in the Republican Party. The media context is one that made it very difficult for Obama to do something that I don't think he did very well anyway, which is explain the steps that were being taken for an economic recovery. The U.S. media context is fragmented. There is no equivalent of the BBC in the United States. Uh, and it is a, a series of economically stressed outlets that are looking for controversy, coexisting with Fox News, which is a behemoth <laughs> able to convey conservative propaganda almost at will. Uh, that's a simple, but it's, it's empirically accurate. I, mean, I can defend it. Uh, <laughs> That, to say the very least, tends to undercut existing office holders who are trying to get a message across to the citizenry. 
And uh, the final factor I would point to is that Obama's attempt to redirect American government, and particularly domestic social and tax policies, occurred against the backdrop of a forest of inherited policies <laughs> that grew up in the late 20th century since the New Deal in the United States. The, the US federal government is, is, has not been a small affair for a long time, and it has expanded both under Republicans and under Democrats, no matter what the political rhetoric says. But a lot of that expansion has taken the form of creating tax breaks and tax credits for all kinds of special interests or private interests or rich people. Um, and our health care system consists of a series of public subsidies and tax credits and tax breaks, very bewildering in its interaction with uh, private insurance and public uh, programs. Uh, of, at the time that Obama came to office, our college loan system included lots of private middlemen who were receiving subsidized profits for delivering loans that could be delivered much more economically or efficiently through government. So Obama's attempt to redirect a public policy in the direction of that would benefit middle income and low income people and deliver fewer goodies, fewer benefits to the very top, um, basically unfolded in that context. And uh, he, he proposed a series of very complex redirections that inherently aroused suspicion of the citizenry as they passed through the American Congress. Uh, healthcare reform is a good example. Uh, the things that were being adjusted in the tax code and the regulatory system and subsidies would be hardly visible at all to the people who were going to benefit from them after they were enacted, but very clear to the business interests, private interests, some of them liberal, by the way. American universities, including my own university, Harvard, were at the forefront in opposing some of the changes in the charitable tax deduction that would have helped to finance the Affordable Care Act. I mean, Harvard is a charity. We need the help. <laughs> so uh, privileged interests, and as well as, le as right ideological interests, were very clear about the stakes and easy to oppose everything move that was made, but the potential beneficiaries were confused or ignorant of the benefits that might be achieved. And the Affordable Care Act, the health reform law, is a prime example of this. It was incredibly complex. The compromises required to get it through the US Congress included things that could be pilloried and ridiculed very easily. Um, and yet, uh, and it wasn't even going to go into full effect for three more years. So most Americans to this day, if are, they're asked by pollsters about the various things that the health care law has actually delivered, say that they approve of them by large bipartisan majorities, but most Americans also to this day don't know those things are in the Obamacare law. So the, the challenge of redirecting a complex and hidden set of established uh, um, uh, government programs is very different from creating them in the first place in the 1930s. Now, my bottom line on the New New Deal uh, yardstick is that Obama made some wrong moves along the way. We can talk about those in the question period. But I believe that on the whole, he achieved a remarkable amount. He and his Democratic allies achieved a remarkable amount of policy change in the directions that had been promised uh, in the face of unremitting uh, opposition. And so I'd like to move on to that unremitting opposition. Because I come from a profession, political science, that 
uh, has had models for quite some time that predicts that when parties lose, they will move to the middle. They will moderate. This is the median voter theory, and it's, it's a religious faith <laughs> in political science, and it's a, 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 it's a religious faith to which most of my colleagues uh, still adhere. Um, and, and like the medieval uh, solar system maps, they find ways to, to, met, to fit any new squiggle into this model. So uh, I'm not here to speak for the entire American political science profession, uh, but I am here to speak the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I come from a university whose motto is Veritas. I take that very seriously. And the, the truth is that the Republican Party, which had already moved to the very hard right on economic issues between uh, 1980 and uh, 2000 has galloped yet further and ever further to the nether right, particularly on economic issues, ever since. And it continued to do so even after Democrats scored major victories against in the late Bush administration, in the 2008 election, and even in face of reports by its own intellectuals that point to the changing electoral and demographic realities in the United States that make many of the courses of action quite unpopular. So we can't understand the Obama era unless we understand why this movement toward right-wing extremism, particularly again on economic and redistributive issues, has continued to pace in the US Republican Party. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to convey all that I'd like to about this. This is actually what I get really excited to study. Um, Republicans are where all the action is these days in the United States. Uh, but the first phase of this was the outbreak of the Tea Party phenomenon, uh, which happened a few weeks after Obama moved into the White House and featured, I understand there's a British equivalent to this, and I don't know how this quite works, but in America it featured older white people carrying signs denouncing Obama's um, mortgage policies and health care policies as the equivalent of Nazism and Stalinism dressed up as American colonists. Uh, uh, the type who threw, you know, tea into the harbor against the British. And I don't know how the British Tea Party adapts that. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to know. Uh, but uh, in the American case, this was very resonant. And the Tea Party also, of course, included a whole series of media operations, the entire right-wing media complex, and um, uh, long-standing uh, billionaire-backed funding organizations and ultra-free market advocacy groups that jumped on the bandwagon and said, yes, we too are the Tea Party. Uh, the research I did with Vanessa Williamson explored both parts of this and how they interacted, but I would say the most fascinating part of our research was when we went out and talked to grassroots Tea Party protesters uh, and uh, observed some of their local Tea Party meetings. 900 local Tea Parties across the United States were organized by these pro by these uh, uh, Tea Partiers in 2010 and 11, and that's a remarkable accomplishment. They meet regularly, and many of them are still meeting, although not as many. Um, we were particularly interested in what they were all riled up about. Now, at the elite level, it's very clear. They were declaring that the protesters supported their long-standing aims to privatize or cut Social Security and Medicare, to reduce regulation on businesses, to block climate change policies, um, you know, the whole package uh, that 
um, the Koch brothers now uh, support uh, wholeheartedly. But when you actually went out and talked to the grassroots Tea Partiers, the older whites who made up about half of the voting ranks of the Republican Party then and still do now, oh, their number one issue was immigration. They were angry about the changing ethnic composition of American society in an era of high immigration since 1965, and they particularly wanted a crackdown on what they perceived to be mostly illegal or undocumented immigrants. Now, in fact, they overestimate the proportion who are in the United States without documentation. And they're particularly riled up about immigrants from Central and, and Mexico and, and America and Mexico. Uh, they saw them as a threat to American society. They saw them as claimants on social uh, welfare policies, health care uh, supports. And you couldn't tell them uh, that, in fact, they weren't eligible for most of those things in Obamacare because they were convinced that Obamacare was going to cut programs that real Americans like themselves were using, the elder entitlements, the veterans programs, in order to pay for these new benefits for these people who, as one woman put it to me, why do I have to hit a, a button to say I want English in my own country? Good question. So um, that group of people was disproportionately white and elderly. And in the United States, white elderly people vote, especially in midterms. So the first vulnerability of the Republican, uh, of the Obama presidency was that it soon faced elections in 2010 and then again later in 2014, in which the electorate was going to be skewed toward angry, very conservative voters. And the big money operations on the right of the Republican Party understood that and did all they could to stoke that opposition with racial innuendo. Uh, as a recent Saturday Night Live skit put it, they had a Mitt Romney character on, he said, we Republicans don't say racist things, we just imply them. <laughs> uh, actually, in the first two years of the Obama presidency, they said them, too. Uh, but um, now, Obama was reelected, but he was reelected by a very different electorate. It's important to remember that in midterm elections, two out of five eligible voters vote in America in recent presidential years, and perhaps it'll be true again in 2016, it's more like three out of five eligible voters. So the electorates are very different in these periods. Th these realities enabled and provoked extremism in the Republican Party. Both the pressures from below, from the very attentive and frightened and angry conservative populist voters in and around the Republican Party who are very assiduous participants in primary elections and who keep an eye on their elected office holders after they're elected, and the pressures from the ro what we call the roving billionaires who are pressing the free market uh, extremes. Both sets of forces worked like a pincers movement on the Republican Party and caused elected office holders and candidates for office to refuse any modicum of compromise with Obama. And it pushed the Republican Party very far to the right, particularly, yes, opposition to immigration reform, but also on a whole series of economic issues, uh, such as advocacy for cuts in Social Security and Medicare, 
proposals for ever more generous tax redistributions toward the already very affluent top of the American um, uh, society. Uh, economic policies that are actually unpopular, even with many Republicans. Uh, flash forward five years later to where we are now, and I would argue that that extremism, particularly the elite brand of extremism, that pulled so many Republicans toward extreme economic measures, uh, redistributive toward the top, in an era where middle-income and lower-income Americans are struggling economically, opened the door wide open for a candidate who could put together what the mass base of the Republican Party really wants, which is immigrant bashing combined with protection of social provision for the native population and at least a gesture in the direction of helping people who feel they've been beat down by trade tr agreements or uh, recent economic trends um, following the Great Recession. So um, the story of Republican extremism is both a story of the roots of refusal to compromise with and determination to use all means possible to obstruct the Obama agenda, which has prevented much more policy change than from happening than might have happened if there had been even a modicum of compromise and which slowed down a lot of the achievements that were made in the first two years. But it also planted the seeds for the breakup of the Republican Party coalition as increasingly the elite and populist forces that labeled themselves Tea Party together in the early period have come apart, particularly in Republican presidential contests. In 2012, the populist opponents looked very hard for a non-Romney to nominate. They just didn't find one. This time around, the, non, the perfect non-Romney, the kick-ass guy, captured 40% of the Republican imagination and electorate last summer, and he never lost it after that. So, um, Obstruction and extremism have reaped the whirlwind now as the Republican Party comes to the end of the Obama presidency unable to field a candidate that its elites, both free market elites and party elites, can get behind as a likely uh, victor who could roll back the Obama accomplishments. I'm not saying it won't happen, but it's less likely with Trump uh, uh, trumping the Republican Party. So let me now conclude by, re by returning to the second yardstick that I articulated back at the beginning, Obama's own yardstick for himself, his stated aspiration to be a Ronald Reagan-like trajectory changer in American government and politics. The journalist David Marinus has recently written a reflection on Obama's aspirations and achievements. And he makes the following point, quote, it, it was not a careless slip when he, Obama, said during the 2008 campaign that he wanted to emulate Ronald Reagan. At the time, you know, there was a lot of, there was a flurry of tut-tutting among liberals. How could he say that? Um, it was not a careless slip, Marina says, when he said that during the 2008 campaign that he wanted to emulate Ronald Reagan and change 
the trajectory of America in ways that recent presidents, including Bill Clinton, had been unable to do. Obama did not just want to be president. His mission was to leave a legacy as a president of consequence, the liberal counter to Reagan. Now, I would continue this observation by stressing that Obama wanted to redirect U.S. government policy and public faith to reverse the directions that Reagan had set in motion in 1980, to revalidate government social and economic policy as tools for improving opportunity and security for the middle and lower income ranks uh, that had faced stagnation and decline since the Reagan Re Revolution, uh, to revalidate what I would call a realist internationalism in a new global era of diplomat, where diplomatic action would matter more than simply launching invasions of entire regions of the world, which the U.S. certainly can do anytime it wants to, but then what? Um, and to rekindle, he aspired as well to rekindle democratic faith, I mean small d democratic faith, in government as a partial tool for achieving cooperative goals. Uh, Obama never suggested that government was the only way, just that it was an important part of Americans' aspirations to achieve cooperative goals. You can see that in his acceptance speech and his inaugural speeches. Now, in many respects, I think Obama has, so far at least, achieved especially the first and second of these goals, the redirection of public policy in the United States toward doing more for the middle and lower ranks of society and uh, the effort to revalidate a realist internationalism. And in fact, I think you're going to see a lot of Republican realist internationalists endorsing uh, Hillary Clinton uh, for, uh, for president in the face of the options that are presented <laughs> at this juncture. Um, and he's at least opened the door for a rekindling of democratic faith in government as a tool for achieving cooperative goals. Um, he has created the possibility that all three of these achievements, at least partially, can be assigned to his legacy. But there are some sharp ironies here as we um, head into the next big American election, and I want to point them out in closing. Obama did not achieve the trajectory change he aspired to achieve in the ways he originally intended. If you go back and read his speeches as a candidate and his acceptance speech in Denver in 2008, you'll see that he imagined, as the quotes from him about Reagan suggest, that he might be a kind of guide or midwife to a transformation that would be appealing across partisan and class lines. He wanted to be a healer of the partisan and ethnic divisions that are so sharp in American society and politics right now. That certainly did not happen. And, it, and the election that we're about to face is going to be one of the most ethnically and racially polarized, not to mention gender polarized, in all of American history. I, I mean, their gender polarization couldn't be before because there was no woman running for the presidency. but. Um, the whole nine yards of polarizations are going to be in play in, in, in this election. And certainly that's not what Obama uh, hoped for uh, during his presidency. He's a, he's a compromiser, uh, and he always reaches out to compromise, and it took him six years to figure out that nobody wanted to compromise with him. Uh, and he, 
His achievements only came in the face of unremitting partisan obstructionism and opposition, which, you know, he fairly ruthlessly and cleverly navigated his way through at various points, but he was slow to accept that he just couldn't get cooperation from imaginary moderate Republicans. And um, it took him until the last two years after the second round of midterm setbacks for Democrats to realize that he had to find ways to proceed, as he has through executive action and in both domestic and foreign policy without any expectation of cooperation uh, from his political enemies or compromise. And finally, here's the final irony that, uh, like all epic-shifting leaders, Obama has opened the door for change. In this case, he's opened the door for 21st century Americans to walk through toward a democracy that will be more truly multi-ethnic, uh, that will uh, rekindle possibilities for using government uh, on behalf of the majority rather than the wealthy, um, and certainly uh, create a more constructive role for the United States in the world political economy. But all of the possibilities is set in motion depend now for their continuation and realization on the election of the wife of the man he dissed in 2008. <laughs> that would be Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, she uh, has to be elected, even as a president who cannot achieve much more in the way of transformation, simply in order to preserve and continue. Uh, the, the, the lines of new openings that Obama has launched. Um, unless she wins, Obama will turn out to be a trajectory-changing president, all right, but the trajectory will be toward nativist reaction rather than toward a more inclusive um, economy and, and, and multi-ethnic democracy. Um, so uh, the end of the story is yet to be told which of those two will move into the White House next. The rise of both of them has been enabled and set in motion by Obama's presidency, but only one of them will continue and deepen his achievements.